that's our prayer right now. And um, even as we sing those songs in the end, Lord, when it's all said and done, our ultimate need is you. Our ultimate, our wanting, what we truly desire, even though we may not make those connections, what we truly desire is you. And we need more of you because we were created for you. We are created in your image and to be satisfied fully in you. So Father, may we be reminded that of afresh this morning. I pray that you would encourage and strengthen our hearts, help us to know our true identity is not wrapped up in what we make it for ourselves or what someone imposes it onto us, but may our true identity be wrapped up in who you are and who you've designed us to be. We ask that you would do that transforming work by your spirit and through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You're going to have a seat right now. At this time, the young worshipers ages four to eight get to continue their worship, but in a very specific context. And so they're going to cruise on over here. I guess Rachel Crow's going to wave her hand and everybody's going to run after her. Thanks for taking care of all the kids, Rachel. You know, it is, uh, I want to say mothers are incredibly amazing, but it is Father's Day today, and so I just want to say, first and foremost, happy Father's Day. Yes, it's okay to be responsive here, so. Um, you know, uh, I know many of you can probably attest to this, but when I was kind of just reflecting on the very reality of Father's Day, um, one thing that I think the Lord and his sovereign, divine, total mission of why in the world he created our existence to raise up children is this. He wants us to understand his heart for us, and the way in which we understand God's heart for his children is so that we would go through the process as well. And I gotta be honest with you, from firsthand experience, I can definitely say this, is that I didn't understand the heart of God in the same way until I had my own children. You know, uh, how, how you have a love for your children in a way that is like, yeah, I know that God loves me and we know things kind of in principle form, but until I had my own children, I, and I distinctly remember, and I'm sure many of you can attest this, that, that especially my first child, and every child coming out obviously, but that first child you're like, I'm a dad, I was once not a dad, and now I'm a dad. And there's like this immediate physiological, psychological thing that just kind of connects, and you're like, I have this insatiable love for this child. And that love just continues to grow and to grow and grow. And I'm like, and that is just kind of pales in comparison for God's love for us. God loves us so much, and he wants us to know his great love for us so much. And so I just pray that we are encouraged in that way. You know, we uh, continue, and actually we are going to conclude our series through the Ten Commandments this morning. And uh, I don't know about you, but uh, for me, it's been a rich process to kind of go through these, kind of unpack them, to settle on them, and, and to kind of dive a little deeper than just kind of what's maybe quickly observed on the surface. And so we go through our, 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 our tenth and final command, which is that you shall not covet. Let me introduce it in this way. There's a story actually uh, depicted for us in Joshua chapter 7, 
And it's a story that many of you are probably familiar with. You might recall that Israel's been wandering around in the desert for 40 years, no doubt kind of itching to, to glean and to take hold of the promise that has been waiting for them called the promised land. God said early on to Abraham, long before the people of Israel were even a nation and a people, he says, I am going to make a great nation out of you and all the world will be blessed in you and through you and I also have a land promised for you. And so we see that God, and, and, and really in ways in which only God could fully understand, God leads you know, Abraham ultimately and his family to, uh, to Egypt. They, they, they settle there for hundreds of years and eventually are finally led out of slavery and to the promised land. Of course, they have to wander for 40 years because of their own rebellion and then finally entering the promised land. And so we see that Moses, God, was used, God used Moses to lead people to the edge of the promised land. And then he tells Joshua, Joshua, you're going to lead the people into the promised land and take conquest of it. And so we see that Israel crosses the Jordan, miraculously, and they come to this very uh, uh, notable place called Jericho. And Jericho is, you know, it's a walled city. Uh, They had much to boast of as far as a place that was impenetrable, you know, it's something that, like, this, this, this city cannot be taken out. And yet God, in a very unorthodox fashion, levels the city, not because of Israel's great might, mind you, but because of God's great might. And he shows his great might by saying, here's how we're going to take, the, how these walls are going to be leveled. They're basically, you're going to start marching around this city, and you do that once every day for seven days. And on the seventh day, you're going to do it seven times. And at that moment... The walls come tumbling down. You see loud rejoicing. The walls come tumbling down. It is a, an incredible and uh, surprising victory. And when that takes place, every nation, every city is in fear. They are losing heart. They're like, look what the, the God of Israel did through his people and how they leveled Jericho. Well, at this, at this place, too, we see that Israel is pretty pumped up. They're like, wow, this is amazing. Our God is going for us. Who can be against us, right? We're going to go forward. The next city on the map is the city called Ai. Ai is kind of a pity little town, you know? It's just like, we just got done with Jericho. Jericho was like, that was the one that we, that was, that would be somewhat telling as far as what we were able to do, perhaps. And yet AI is just piddly. Joshua does some reconnaissance work. They're like, you know what? We only need like two to 3,000 people or soldiers. So we'll just kind of send just a, a, just a handful of people. They'll go on in there and it'll just be an easy victory. Right? Well, not so much. You see, Joshua sends 3,000 soldiers into Ai thinking that it's just going to be a, just a plug and play. And what happens actually is Ai rallies and they send Israel running with their tail between their legs. And of course, when this all happens, it's just kind of, it, it takes the people of Israel by surprise and they're kind of shocked and they don't know how to make sense of this. And, and in fact, Scripture even says that they, they begin to lose courage and that they're filled with fear and they're curious. They're like, what in the world has happened? How did this happen? Why did this happen? And so Joshua, as a leader, seeks the Lord and the Lord speaks to him and in summary basically says, someone has sinned. You see, when God told Joshua and the people of Israel to, to uh, this is how I want to, you to overtake Jericho, 
He says, I want everything to be destroyed. I don't want you to take anything for yourself. No plunder this time. Everything must be destroyed. But that's not exactly what happened. You see, there's a man named Achan who took some stuff secretly for himself. And we see that in verse 1, which is kind of an introduction to this whole story. It says, Israel violated the instructions about the things set apart for the Lord. A man named Achan had stolen some of these dedicated things. And through a process of discovery, we see that Achan uh, basically says, yes, I have done this, I've explained this. And in verse 20, he says, it is true I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. Among the plunder, I saw a beautiful robe from Babylon, 200 silver coins, and a bar of gold weighing more than a pound. I wanted them so much that I took them. They are hidden in the ground beneath my tent with the silver buried even deeper than the rest. And unfortunately, for Achan and his wife and his family, even his livestock, that choice cost him his life and his family's life. We come again to this tenth and final commandment out of the Ten Commandments out of Exodus chapter 20. We sometimes summarize or shorten the verse or the command that says, you shall not covet, but it really says this, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you must not covet your neighbor's wife, male or female servant, ox or donkey, don't take my donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. Now there's a couple observations I want to kind of highlight here quickly before we kind of dive into what this means. First of all, This command is somewhat unique in the sense that when compared to all the other commands, this command really deals or kind of targets the internal motives, right? In other words, when you contrast it with all the other nine commands, the other nine commands deal with the outward, some kind of outward action. Don't murder, don't kill, don't steal. Those are all outward actions, but this command deals with what is internal or what deals with the matters of the heart, I think a second observation that's important to highlight is this, that there's a reason why this command is listed last. In other words, it's not God, God isn't just tacking it on going, oh, by the way, this is also something good to consider as well. You know, we'll kind of put it on the end there. No, there's a reason why this is strategically placed last, and that is this. First of all, all sin begins in the heart. Every time we rebel against God, it starts in our mind or in the heart. And even more specifically, the sin of coveting almost always precedes sin. Now what is coveting? Maybe we don't really use that word very common you know, in, our, in our normal language when we're interacting with one another, but what does it mean to covet well, to covet most succinctly means it means to, w- to wish for earnestly. These are the descriptive terms that we need to understand. It's, it's to wish for something earnestly. It is a, a consuming desire to want for ourselves what actually belongs to another. Or it is, a, a, it is to want for ourselves what we have no right to possess. Or even, it could mean this, it is a consuming desire for something 
we don't have. Now, we need to kind of qualify what I mean here because we use the word passion or desire, a desire for something. God isn't against desires. That's not what we're talking about. He's not against desiring things. That's not, that's not ungodly in and of itself. I don't know if you recall or not, but as a kid, this, you, know, you younger millennials probably don't understand this, what I'm about to say here, but when I was a kid, the Sears catalog was a thing. You guys did, yeah, Sears, yeah, thank you. Thank you for the validation. The Sears catalog, as a kid, I could, you know, beginning of December, even in Alaska, this big, thick catalog of all kinds of things. Again, this is pre-internet days, so you can't just Amazon it. It's, it's like, whoa. And as a kid, I remember sitting by the fire because the fire was the warmer part of our trailer, right? And so everything else was frozen on one side of the trailer. So we're all like nestled up against the fire where the fireplace is at. And I just, we just, I just be laying on the floor for, like after dinner, probably an hour every night looking at all the toys I would never get. Does that also ring a bell for you, Tom? <laughs> I'm like, oh, look at this. And oh, look at that. Oh, wouldn't it be so great to this? We actually joke because some, actually, the Altons uh, gave us the, the, this electric little John Deere electric car uh, that their grandchildren kind of grew up in. And I just remember, oh man, I remember seeing that in the Sears catalog. I always wanted an electric car. The electric car I never got. <laughs> That's not a knock to my parents at all. It was just one of those things I would sit there and look at all these things. In other words, what I'm getting at, it's okay to desire things. It's okay to want things. Desire is not sinful in and of itself. God made us with this trait. God made us to desire things. It's consistent with us because it's consistent with who he is. We desire because God is a God of desire. We have passions because God is a God who is passionate. We have ambitions because God is an ambitious God. And we're created in his image, so therefore we desire. Even Jesus himself, he, 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 he actually uh, revealed all the, the, the range of emotions that were possible, emotions of every kind, but he did so in a sinless way. And this is the point that we're kind of, kind of honing in on here. You see, desire in and of itself is not wrong, but... When our desires and our feelings and our hopes and our dreams are destructive to us, and when they cause division among us, then they become wrong. Desire is not wrong, but when they become destructive or divisive, then they are wrong. In other words, our problem in life is not that we desire things, No, our problem is that we desire the wrong things or that we desire things in the wrong way. So the question I think I want to pose for us, and there's a few questions that I'm just going to pose and then therefore answer. The next question I want to pose is, when does desire become sinful? If desire in and of itself is not wrong, when does it become sinful? Or when does does desire become what the Bible terms as coveting? Well, desire becomes sinful or coveting when we earnestly desire what someone else has. When we, when we experience a sort of insatiable craving for, what someone else, for someone else's possessions or status. 
In other words, it's not, again, as I kind of said, it's not just that we want something, even if others even have it. Like you can drive by someone's house and go, well, they have a nice house. I wouldn't mind having a nice house like that, or they have a nice car. That'd be kind of nice to have a running car, you know, that was reliable. Nothing wrong with those desires. But, but, but desire becomes sinful or it becomes unhealthy when we, when we, or in, in a sense, when we covet, it's when we want their possessions. We want that person's possessions. We want that person's success. We want their house. We want their car. We want, dare I say, their spouse, their success. Oh, I wish I could afford a house like they have. Oh, I wish I could go on as many vacations as that person does. Oh, I wish I had all the, 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 the funds necessary to, to buy all the toys like so-and-so has. Sometimes this happens on a relational level. Oh, I wish my husband was like so-and-so's husband. Oh, I wish my wife was like so-and-so's wife. Do you realize that, not to get off topic necessarily, but all affairs begin in the mind? All affairs begin in the mind, wishing to possess what someone else has or longing for something you do not have. You see, coveting is being envious of what others have and also in the same token, dissatisfied with what you do not have. In fact, coveting someone else's things, when we do this, when we look at someone else's stuff and say, I want their stuff and I want this and I want that, and again, the the, the language here is not just, oh, that would be kind of nice to have. It's no, I, I crave it. I long for it. I want it desperately. The reason why, when we do that, we can never, ever celebrate someone else's successes and privilege. And the reason is because we say things like, I, why do that? Why do they get something and I don't? Why does that person get more blessing and I don't? Why do they get more stuff and I don't? But we need to drive it a little de- a degree further here. Because coveting never actually stays in the mind. It starts in the mind, but if left unchecked, coveting must eventually be satisfied. Our our cravings ultimately lead us to take actions and, and to make decisions to acquire what we crave. And in turn, it leads to all kinds of compromise and evil. Listen to what James 1 says in verses 14 and 15. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed why, by what? His own desire. When desire, then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Or listen to two chapters later in James chapter 3. Jealousy and selfish, selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. Such things are earthly, unspiritual, and even demonic. For wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and evil of every kind. 
you know, as a Christian, our worldview and our understanding of spiritual things is that we also, though we have a God that loves us, we also have an enemy, a formidable enemy that seeks to take us out. And as Scripture makes reference to on a number of occasions, this enemy, whose name used to be Lucifer, we oftentimes refer to him as Satan, he was actually a created being by God. He was God's, in a sense, right-hand angel. He was the angel of all angels. But you know what led to Satan's downfall? The sin of coveting. Because Satan wanted to be in the place of God. He wanted what God had. Do you realize that the first sin that corrupted all of God's creation began with coveting? We see when the serpent deceived both Adam and Eve, we need to understand that, first of all, deception is not a sin. It's how we respond or what we do in light of our deception. We're all vulnerable to deception, which is why we need the truth. And if we don't have the truth to withstand the, 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 the evil darts of deception, then we will in turn sin. And that's what happened to both Eve and Adam in the garden, right? Right? The serpent convinced them that God was withholding, that God was was not giving them the full truth. They bought into that lie and then therefore, as a result, acted upon that lie and sinned against God. In fact, we see in Genesis 3, verse 6, she, that is Eve, saw the tree and she saw that it was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. And so she took some of the fruit and ate it. And then she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. Here we have our enemy and we have the first sin in God's perfect creation all began with a heart that coveted something it did not have. You see, when desire desire becomes ungodly and sinful, when we become consumed with what another either person has or we become dissatisfied with what we do not have. The question is, why do we do this? Why are we vulnerable in this way? Why do we crave and long for things in in an ungodly way, in an unhealthy way? Why do we covet I believe we covet or we entertain sinful desires is because our passions are misplaced and ultimately self-serving. Listen to James chapter 4. James seems to be a popular reference point here for this sermon. James chapter 4 verses 1 through 3, James asks the question, what causes quarrels and, and what causes fights among you? It's a good question, right? What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not, rhetorical question, rhetorical answer really to this question, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive. Why? Because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. This is why John, 
In 1 John chapter 2, he, he warns fellow believers in Jesus Christ. He, he warns them in this way. He says, Do not love the world nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the, love, for the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and the pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is fading away along with everything that people crave, but anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. So we crave because our passions are misplaced, because oftentimes what we desire are actually self-serving instead of God-honoring. But to drive this a little bit deeper here, I think there's, a, there's an even a, a more critical point to identify as to why we covet. And I believe the reason why we covet is that it is it's because we believe that if we have those things, if we have what someone else has, it, if we acquired what we think we're missing, then it will bring us happiness. We will have more joy. We will have more peace. We will have a better life. If I only get what I think I need or want, then I'll be at peace. Then I'll be satisfied. Then I'll be fulfilled. Again, nothing wrong with wanting happiness. There's nothing wrong or sinful about wanting to be joyful. There's nothing wrong or sinful about desiring peace, right? But the fact is, when we are convinced that happiness, when we are convinced that the happiness we long for and the better life we, that we so desperately want is attained by going after other, what others have, what we are really saying, maybe not realizing it, but what we are really saying is this God, you are not good. God, you have not been good to me. God, you have withheld from me. God, you haven't given me those things that I believe would make me happier and that would make my life better. Now again, we may not use those terms. We may not refer to that attitude in that way, but that's really what we're saying. That what I have right now is not sufficient. And God has obviously not given me what I think is sufficient for my life and for the peace and the joy that I long for. And so I, therefore, in turn, have to go after it and get it myself. I have to acquire it myself. But when we do that, what we fail to see when we go after those things that we crave is that what our hearts truly long for What we really need, what we are really craving, is God. You see, we live in a world where we are easily deceived, easily distracted, easily derailed, if you only have this. I mean, it's marketing 101. The role of marketers, and the reason why companies spend half their income, in a sense, into marketing is to make you think that you cannot be as happy until you have this product. 
Your life will be better as soon as you acquire this thing. And there's this little trigger. I think it's the same trigger called a dopamine trigger that drugs oftentimes also use too, right? That little dopamine gets released and you go, oh, yes, that will make me happy. My life will be better. When in fact, what we don't realize is what we are truly craving is God. You see, at the heart of all coveting is a restless desire for something that only God can give. Our heart is always restless until it is ultimately satisfied in God. And you know, you have heard it, I've said it before, and you've probably heard it before too, but St. Augustine said this, Thou hast made us for thyself, a prayer to God. Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. The point is, we will always be restless. We will always be anxious. We will always be prone to covet when we don't receive our ultimate satisfaction and fulfillment and peace and joy from God Himself. Why? Because He is life. He is joy. He is peace. He is your life. It's not things, it's not stuff, it's not all these other things that so easily distract us. It's God himself. It's his presence. It's what he provides by his very presence. That is why the scriptures encourage, but even lovingly exhort us, be filled with the spirit. The spirit of God. So that that craving, that longing is satisfied so that you actually fulfill and receive and experience what you truly long for. So how do we know if we're coveting? How do we know if we're on the verge or even currently in the practice of having unhealthy, ungodly desires? The sin of coveting. How do we know that's potentially true of us? couple things that come to mind. Um, one indication or litmus test of if we might be coveting is this. We start rehearsing the deceptive and destructive lie that starts like this. If only I had fill in the blank. If only I had, what would it be for you? As soon as I get, then I'll be happy. As soon as I acquire, then life will be better. Then I'll be at peace. Then I'll finally be able to rest. You see, sometimes we can be so consumed by what we don't have that we don't see and value what we already do have. You see, a covetous desire always sees what's missing. A covetous desire is always wanting a little more than what it has. A covetous desire is never satisfied no matter how much it has. Not to overuse the the quote, but 
You've heard it probably said by Rockefeller himself, right? He was asked a question by a reporter. He's one of the wealthiest guys in the United States. How much money does it take to be happy, Rockefeller? And Rockefeller replies, just a little bit more. In other words, a dollar more is always a little better. You know, Solomon the sage speaks to this unhealthy appetite and even a love for things or possessions that ultimately that seem to promise happiness. And he says in Ecclesiastes 5, those who love money will never have enough. How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. The more you have, listen to this, the more you have, the more people come to help you spend it. So what good is wealth except perhaps to watch it slip through your fingers? People who work hard sleep well, whether they eat a little or much. But the rich seldom get a good night's sleep. Those are the words of Solomon in Ecclesiastes 5. Meaning, it's not about stuff. It's not about what others have. And it's not even possessions. It could be any number of things. If only I had fill in the blank. I think a second very close related but kind of distinct test as to if you are in danger of coveting or not is this. You are always on the hunt for the next thing. You're always on the hunt for the next thing, right? The hunt means that you think about the next thing all the time. It's, it kind of begs the question a little bit. When you have your morning shower, assuming you take a morning shower, when you have your morning shower, what do you think about or when you're on your commute to work not that you have to commute very far in Port Angeles but when you're on your commute to work or better yet when you have downtime and kind of white space in your schedule what do you like to think about what do you like to to envision it's possible that those things that come repeatedly to mind could be an indicator that there may be an unhealthy desire growing. Not necessarily, but it could. You see, Luke 8, oftentimes referred to as the, the parable of the seeds or the parable of the soils. There's one of the seeds that falls among the thorny soil, and that represents those who hear the message of the gospel but all too quickly the message is crowded out by the cares and the riches and the pleasures of this life. God, I know you're important, but I also think these are important. God, I know that you're, I, I need you, and one day I'll definitely be full all in with you, but right now this is what really matters most to me. You see, our problem, kind of just as human beings, our problem is often not that... that that riches and possessions and pleasures are wrong. That's not really our problem. I mean, those aren't sinful in and of themselves. Now, our problem, as Kevin DeYoung states, is that the more you possess, the greater danger they start to possess you. So again, we can start thinking, oh, if I only have this, if I only could acquire that, then I would be happy. And, 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 but the thing is, as you've probably proven to yourself, once I get that, then I need the next thing. Just look at kids. 
We have toys that our kids haven't played with for months until the friend comes over and starts grabbing something. Then all of a sudden they want that. Or you can have a, a gazillion toys in the house and then you have to walk down the toy aisle of Walmart. We were just at Walmart. I was like, maybe you could take the kids to the toy aisle. I said, not a good idea. <laughs> I was like, I don't want to battle that right now. Psalm 37, better to, it is better to be godly and have a little than to have, be evil and rich. You see, God exhorts us not to covet, or, or is it not to covet because to covet is the perspective that, God, you're not enough, that, God, you have withheld from me, that, God, you are not good. But the question, I think, that the final question I want to ask and answer for us is this. What is the opposite of coveting, then? If coveting is a sin, and, and is it against God's law, if, if it's against his character, if, it, if it's kind of pointing the finger at God as if somehow he is withheld from you and, and he doesn't love you in the same way, then what, what does it mean to live a life that doesn't covet? Well, much like the opposite of stealing is generosity, and much like the opposite of false testimony is only speaking those words that build up, we see that the opposite of coveting is contentment. The opposite of coveting is contentment. What is contentment? I was given this painting, kind of a picture of this painting, about a week ago, and uh, I'm going to hang it over our bed. I think someone thought of us because there's six kids in that bed, so that's probably why the Bacon family came to mind when they were looking for a home for this picture. But what I love about this picture is not just there's six kids and it, we seem to relate to that size of family, but look at the peace on this family's face. You see, you look at that, like the, the bed is held up by some bricks. Looks like they have newspaper as window treatments. Like at a wood stove right there, there's a, there's a leak, obviously. There's a pool of water. Looks like the chicken has free access to the house as well. But everybody's happy. I see that picture and I look at it and I go, wow. Regardless of life circumstances, regardless of what they have or, in this case, don't have, they, love, they are at peace. And they seem to be full of joy. You can take a picture. What is contentment? Contentment is not just accepting your plot in life. You know, kind of this idea of like, well, it is what it is. There's nothing I can do to change my circumstance. I just had to accept it. That's me being content. No, that's not contentment. Contentment is the state of being happy and satisfied. It's really alluding to this ease of mind Whereas coveting always is on the hunt for the next thing and it's this insatiable desire to get after the next thing, contentment is, I'm at peace regardless of what I have or don't have. More specifically, contentment is to be free from, the care, from, from care because of satisfaction with what one already has. In other words, contentment is not seeking after the next thing in order to be happier and freer. Contentment is enjoying what you already have because you know that your ultimate source of joy and peace and satisfaction is from God 
and is God himself. Paul says this in Philippians chapter 4, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In, every, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That secret that Paul alludes to is, realized, is, is really the acknowledgement that it's not about what I have or don't have. It's the fact that I have, I'm a, a child of the king, that I'm a son of God, that, that when he says in 2 Corinthians 4, I don't lose heart in my ministry and everything else I endure because guess what awaits me? An eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. That's what awaited him. So he's like, yeah, whatever with this life in a sense, I have everything to look for, I have everything to gain. It's why he would say in 1 Timothy 6, 6, Godliness with contentment is great gain. So finally, I said finally before, I guess this is my final question. What does a life marked by contentment look like? What does a life marked by contentment look like? And how do I know if I'm not coveting and and what what, what is the attitude of someone who is truly content I think one word summarizes it or captures it best, and that is the attitude of gratitude. That statement by, I think, Chuck Swindoll is a very poignant and profound way to understand it, the attitude of gratitude. You see, gratitude is the attitude formed by a perspective that says, because I have Jesus Christ, because I, my, my soul is saved for eternity, because I have Jesus himself, because his spirit lives in me, I have gained the greatest gift of all. It is the belief that because God is good, then he has given me everything I need for life, for godliness. That God hasn't withheld. That I am not without that I am not deprived, that, that, that God doesn't love me less like the other person just because they might have some more stuff or not. I have Jesus. And when I have Jesus, I have gained everything. The fact is, brothers and sisters, when we gain Christ and are fully satisfied in Him because of an abiding relationship with Him, that is when we are most free. Father, even as we conclude these ten commands, we, we recognize once again, you don't give us commands because you don't love us. You give us these commands because you do love us. Because you created our life and you know that this, these are clear boundaries so that we might truly live. Live free. Live victorious live in a way that glorifies you. Outside, living life on our terms always leads to destructive choices. But living within those bounds that you have created, we get to be free indeed. So Father, may we, may we receive these commands, again, not suppressed by them, not weighed down by them, but see them as the way in which when we follow you, we follow Christ. We follow it in a path of freedom with joy and happiness 
the life that we really long for, the life that you promised to us. Father, glorify yourself through our faithfulness. Be pleased by the way in which we desire to honor you. In Jesus' name, amen.